Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Today, we're going to look at the second to last of these statements that Jesus makes in the book of John, chapter 18, as he's preparing to go to the cross. And before we go to our text, let me um, offer a disclaimer once again that I offered in the inaugural week of this series, but it will apply to our text today, and so I want to mention it one more time. Uh, In the first week, I mentioned that there are seven universally recognized I am statements in the book of John. Most uh, commentators and theologians, they agree on seven statements that Jesus makes. But I see eight as I read through the scriptures, and there are others that might see eight as well. And today, we are studying that eighth one that is not universally accepted among all of the smart guys. Now, To be clear, I am not suggesting that I am wiser than the sages or the theologians that have gone before me. I think we all know that that's not true, all right? I'm just the blouse-wearing, ankle-showing, loudmouth on the west side of San Francisco. So I'm not suggesting that I'm a theologian. But in my humble opinion, as I've studied out this text this week, it is mind-boggling to me that commentators and theologians do not include the statement we're going to be studying today because I think it is the most powerful and the most obvious of the I am statements tying Jesus back to the Old Testament declaration in Exodus chapter 3. And hopefully you find yourself on my team by the end of the sermon today as well and we can just flex on all the theologians and go, we know better than everybody else, all right? So with that, let's get into our text. Um, I want to offer you a title as I do every single week and uh, I don't want anyone to be offended by this. I'm not borrowing the the song title from the late 90s Ice Cube West Side Connection song, but we are going to call this chat Bow Down, all right? Bow Down. Anyone recognize that song title? Okay, you shouldn't. Put your hands down. Don't be proud of that. All right, let's pray. (laughs) Uh, Jesus, we welcome you over these next couple of moments to speak to us. Thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you that, as Robin shared earlier, we had the opportunity to usher you in with our praise, and we know that you're here among us. Uh, We ask over the next few moments as we go to your word that you would speak to our hearts, you'd transform the way we live, transform the way we think, and that we would leave this place different than when we walked in. In all these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. All right, John chapter 18, we'll go there. Let me give you some context as we start out. A few chapters prior to this moment, Jesus sits down with his disciples for what we would now know as the Last Supper, but it was the Passover meal that they were celebrating together. And during this meal, near the beginning, Jesus makes a statement to his disciples that creates a little bit of discord among the brethren. He, he says, as they start out the meal, one of you is going to betray me tonight and hand me over to the authorities. And immediately all the disciples start to get nervous. They're like, which one is going to hand Jesus over? This is, this is our rabbi, a Messiah. We've been walking him for, with him for three years. And so they start asking each other. And finally, one disciple turns to John, the author of the scripture we're going to read today. And he says, hey, ask the Lord which one of us is going to betray him. And I love the way that John records this in his book. Remember, this is the guy who's writing this. He says, so the disciple whom Jesus loved turned to him and asked him this question. I'm like, come on, bro. That's just insecurity showing right there. You just had to let us know in the eternal canon of scripture that you were the disciple that Jesus loved. I thought he so loved the world that you said earlier in John 3, 16. What the heck are you talking about? And then I start thinking like, how did John come to this revelation? Like, did Jesus turn to him one day and go, hey, I just want you to know, I love you more than all the other jokers around me right now. I just, of course he didn't. Like, how many parents do we have in the room? 
Okay, how many parents love one of your kids more than the other ones? Just me. You're all liars, all right? That's whatever. But you don't tell the other kids that, right? Like, my parents sit in the front row every single weekend, and I know that they love me more than my sisters. Notice my sisters aren't in this church. They come to their son's church, all right? I'm just throwing that out there for consideration. But we don't talk about that. It's just understood among the siblings. So, so Jesus tells these guys that someone's going to betray him, and John leans over and he says, hey, who's the dirty rat in the bunch? Who's, who's, who's going to betray you tonight? And Jesus says, it's the one whom I give the bread to after I dip it into the bowl. So he takes a piece of pita bread, dips it into the olive oil, and hands it to Judas. The Bible says that as Judas ate the bread, that Satan entered his heart. And at that moment, Jesus dismisses him from the dinner table and says, you are free to go do what you must do. So Judas goes and he gathers the authorities who will later arrest Jesus. But now we have Jesus sitting with the 11 guys he spent the last few years with. He knows that this is the last meal that they're gonna share together. He knows that the words he shares over the next few moments are gonna carry great weight for the rest of their lives. And we begin to witness for three chapters some of the most profound and loving words of Jesus to these men who have given their lives to follow him. But Jesus tells us that these words are not just to those men, they're to all of us. They're words that were spoken to every disciple who would make a decision to follow him. So therefore, you and I, just as much as they were for them. And he starts off by taking communion, something we'll do this Tuesday at our pursuit gathering. He says, guys, here's what I want you to remember. From now on, this piece of bread, it represents my body. It's gonna be broken for you. Crown of thorns for your peace of mind. My stripes on my back for your healing, like we sang about just a moment ago. From now on, when you eat this bread, I want you to remember me. And they took the glass of wine and he said, this is my blood which will be spilled for you. There's a new covenant that's gonna be written in my blood. No longer is your righteousness or your merit with God based on your performance of the past, but it's based on me. The fact that I'm sacrificing my life for you. From now on, every time you drink this, I want you to remember my sacrifice. And then he begins to share a couple of the statements that we've unpacked in previous weeks. He tells them, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me and you will bear much fruit. He says, I'm gonna leave you soon, and, but you know the way to get to me. And one of the disciples says, well, we don't know the way. And he says, no, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. If you wanna get to the Father, you gotta go through me. But hey, even though I'm leaving you, I promise I'm gonna send you the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna put my spirit on the inside of you and he will be with you, he will be in you, he will guide you in all truth and he will provide peace that surpasses your understanding. And then he warns him, he says, you're gonna, you're gonna come up against some hardships in this life. People are going to reject you because you associate with me. But here's what I want you to remember in those moments. I have gone to prepare a place for you. I'm making a house for you in eternity. So as you go through trials here on earth, fix your eyes on eternity. Fix your eyes on me. And you can go through these light and momentary sufferings if you remember that one day we're going to be together again. And then at the conclusion of this meal, it says that Jesus prays for his disciples. In fact, not just them, but for all of us. He says, I pray this for all of those who will ultimately become my disciples, that they would be protected from harm. Just think about that for a moment. Jesus prayed 2,000 years ago that you would be protected from harm today. Powerful. And then he concludes the prayer by saying this. I pray that my disciples would be one. 
that they would be united, that they would share the same heart. They would not be divided over their opinions or their politics or their denominations, but that they would be so united and love one another in such a way that they would display to the world how much the Father in heaven loves them. That their love would be complete. And then he concludes the prayer. He says, in Jesus' name, in my name, amen. Then they sing a song of worship together and they head out to the garden at Gethsemane where he will be ultimately betrayed and handed over to the authorities. And this is where we pick up in John chapter 18, verse two. It says, Judas, the betrayer, knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and the Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for, he asked. Jesus, the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As soon as Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and they fell to the ground. Once more, he asked them, who are you looking for? And again, they replied, Jesus, the Nazarene. I told you that I am he, Jesus said. And since I'm the one you want, let these others go. Now, now John abbreviates the conclusion of this story, but another gospel writer, Matthew, he does a bit of a, a more of an exhaustive uh, story detail here. And, and I wanna include his bit because it does help us to understand the total picture that Jesus is painting here. But it goes on to say in Matthew's gospel, then Simon Peter, after all of this, drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest slave. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly? But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Now, for those who are maybe not familiar with the story, fear not, the other gospel writer, Luke, the doctor, he does include in his bit that this guy's ear was healed. So we're not leaving the guy without an ear in the story, right? Jesus takes care of the guy and, and sets him on his way. Just need you to understand that so that you don't think that Jesus just left the guy there, all right? But this is a crazy scenario. Like, I think sometimes we, we read through the Bible and these stories that we've read many times before, and we just, yeah, 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 we just nod and but can we just step back for a moment and can we consider the weight of what's taking place in this garden scene for a moment? These army officials, these soldiers, immediately brought to their knees when Jesus mentions his name. It, it feels somewhat surreal. It feels like something you'd see in a movie, like, like in that scene in Narnia where Aslan roars and the white witch is brought to her knees. It doesn't feel like something that has actually happened in the real world, but this is not fiction. This is not fable. This is not an embellishment of events in the garden. This is the eyewitness account of a man who witnessed this moment in history. And while it might feel surreal to some of us, I and perhaps others in the room can attest to the fact that I've been in some spiritual settings. I've been in some gatherings before where the power and the weight of God's presence was so significant that my physical body had to respond in that moment. Let me, let me get a little Pentecostal for, for uh, our church on a Sunday morning, if I could. I, I remember, and I've shared this story many times, 19 years old, I went to a conference in Seattle, Washington. At the time, I was far from Jesus, 
and I knew it, but I also knew I needed to get things right with him. And as I head out to this conference for the, over the course of three days, I had encounter after encounter after encounter with the presence of Jesus. I recommitted my life to him. I was filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other languages. And then there was a moment, I don't know if I've shared this one before, but I was receiving prayer from a number of leaders. And as I was receiving prayer, this little 70-year-old woman walks by and just taps me on the shoulder and says, God, give him a picture of his future. And the best way I can describe what happened next is like I got hit by a ton of bricks and I was immediately brought to my face on the ground, face to the carpet, and apparently stayed there for about 30 minutes. Well, for the first time and only time in my life, God gave me an open vision. I saw myself doing the very thing that I'm doing right now at 19 years old. And I won't tell you how many years ago that was because it was a while back. My physical body responding to the power of God. The irony was that I didn't have any spiritual reference for that. No framework. I made fun of people that responded like that to God. I'm like, that ain't real. That ain't God. And then here I am knocked out on the ground. And I know it was God because it was a 70-year-old woman. I can take a 70-year-old woman, all right? Like, if you're 70 and you're a woman here, I, we can go for it. I, I can take you down. I'm just, I need you to understand that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Such a powerful environment. But... That wasn't the only time I experienced something that significant. Later, years later, Robin and I were in a uh, pastor's gathering while a prophetic gal was there praying for people and speaking. And in the middle of her, her, her talk, her teach, taught, sermon, whatever it was, one of those things, she, she just stops talking. And you could sense the presence of God, the power of Jesus invade the room in such a way where 300 pastors could not speak or move for an hour Lips sealed, all of us just sitting under the weight of God's presence. How many parents would like that one to happen with your kids sometime at the house? Yeah, yeah. once again, a one-time event, never seen it happen again. But the event that I think most closely parallels the one that we're reading in scripture today was one that I did not attend, but my father shared with me about recently. And I just learned that Bob, our bass player, was also at this event as well. Uh, back in the 90s, there was a group called Promise Keepers, a men's ministry. Anyone remember Promise Keepers? Anyone old enough? Okay, yeah, we got some real ones in the house. I like it, good to have you. Uh, so in 1997, Promise Keepers called a national day of prayer and a solemn assembly to the lawn in Washington, D.C., and it was on October 4th, 1.4 million men showed up from all over the nation to pray and worship over our country. In fact, I think we have a photo of it there, right there. And I know, I know it's a bit grainy. That's, by the way, that is October 4th, not January 6th. I need people to understand that today. <laughs> just, just, just need to make sure, okay. That's a lot of men. That's a lot of BO right there. And my dad began to describe the event to me. He said, you know, with that many men hanging out, doing what you think, everyone's joking around, having a good time. And unlike the father's house, there was no countdown clock for the service to start. But out of nowhere, these three Messianic Jews dressed in their priestly garment came out to the stage and they began to blow some shofars. And what he describes happened next was that the second they began to make a sound from those horns, Every one of those men, 1.4 million men, were brought to their knees and began to weep under the power of God's presence. In fact, he said it was so powerful that it wasn't just the God-fearing men that were affected by this sound, but even those with an earshot that had nothing to do with God were also affected. One of our friends, who was a cop, uh, was uh, volunteering at that event, and he was surrounding a group of very aggressive protesters that had come in defiance of the event. 
And he described that the moment that sound came from the stage, every cop and every protester who was in defiance of God fell to their knees and began to weep as well under the power of Jesus's presence in that gathering. Come on, bring that one back again. Right? Powerful. And in essence, that's what we're witnessing here in John chapter 18. A moment where the power of God is so evident that both those who've come to arrest Jesus and the God-fearing disciples are all brought to their knees simply because Jesus uttered two words, I am. And to be clear, those are the words that he uttered. I think the English translation of the Bible does us a disservice here because as you saw in parentheses, it includes the word he, but Jesus never said that word in the original language. That was added later in the translation of the Bible. But when these men approached him in the garden and he said, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He only replied with two words, I am, I am. If you're wondering, this is why I believe this is the most powerful I am statement that we're studying in this series. Because for the first time, he has stripped away all of the analogies. He's no longer the bread or the light or the good shepherd or the gate or the vine. He just comes right out and tells these men who he is. I am the same God who was in the wilderness with Moses in Exodus chapter 3, speaking from a burning bush, declaring that I see and I know when I hear what my people are suffering through and I'm coming to deliver them. You're looking at the same God right now standing in front of you. I am. This is the bookend of Exodus 3. A 1,400-year-old prophecy about the coming Messiah is answered in a moment in the garden. But wait, there's more. Because Jesus doesn't just say it once, does he? He says it twice. After all these guys hit the deck, he asks them again, who were you looking for? And they say, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. What does he say? I already told you. I am. I am. I told you that I am. I am that I am. Are you putting this together? Guys, this is the exact same phrase God uses in Exodus chapter 3. This is the exact same way that God introduced himself to humanity before he delivered millions of Israelites from Egypt. Before he painted a prophetic picture of what would take place with the Messiah. Who shall I say is sending me, Lord? Tell them I am that I am is sending me. Who are you looking for in the garden? Jesus of Nazareth. I am that I am. Chaya asher chaya. I am becoming whatever I need to become for this situation. I am the same God standing before you now in the garden. I don't know. I'm a little more excited about that than I think you are because that's enough information right there for me to blow a shofar, take out a hanky, and run around this building 17 times. No wonder a bunch of guys fell on their faces in this moment. The Old Testament prophecy is meeting the New Testament reality in the face of humanity for the first time. Imagine the, the collision of this prophetic word and the reality standing in front of them in this moment. No wonder they had to bow down and worship him. I am 
that I am. And, and then that's, that's enough. We could end the sermon here. We could all go home today. We could chew on that until Easter. That's enough bunny for us to eat for the next couple of days, all right? But according to the clock, I got 15 minutes and 22 seconds left. And I did not put this blouse on today to quit early, all right? So we're going to go for a couple more thoughts. Clearly, I'm insecure about what I'm wearing today. That's fine. It's whatever. So here's what I want to do in our remaining moments together. I want to give you two thoughts out of this powerful, involuntary bow-down moment in Scripture. Two things that I believe this displays for us. The first, and perhaps the most obvious, is that this whole garden scenario shows us there is power in his name. There is power in his name. Come on, say that with me. There is power in his name. I, I don't know if you do this when you read the Bible, but I do often. I like, I'm, a, I'm an, a picture guy. I like to see images. And so when I'm reading through the Bible, I try to imagine the scenario in my mind's eye. Uh, and sometimes, like, videos like The Chosen or movies kind of paint a picture for us as well. And I really love that. I feel like it brings the text alive for me. So I've read this passage of scripture many times before, and I had a picture in my head of what it looked like. I saw Jesus with his timid 11 disciples off to one side of the garden, and here comes a few dozen soldiers with their pitchforks and their torches, and they're ready to take Jesus out. The disciples freak out, and they leave, and these guys arrest Jesus. That's the image I saw in my mind. In fact, I've even seen that depicted in, in film before. That's kind of the image. But as I began to study this text this last week, I got to tell you, I, I was forced to reconsider what I pictured in my mind because that is not at all what is happening in this story. It is far greater than our minds I might imagine. When John begins to describe this interaction in the garden, he uses a very specific term when he tells us that a contingent of Roman soldiers was given to Judas to join the Jewish temple guard, the police, in the garden. He uses this word spira in the Greek. And spira is a military measurement term that refers to a fraction of a legion. A legion would have been six to 10,000 soldiers, but a spira is one-tenth of a legion. So really what we're seeing here in the garden is that somewhere between 600 and 1,000 soldiers accompanied Judas and the temple guard to arrest Jesus in the garden. Almost a thousand trained military professionals showing up in this garden to take out one guy. So, so this is not just some small group. This is not you and your home group going to take out Jesus. This is a small army. When Jesus said, I am, it was not just a few guys that fell down on their knees and began to bow down at the mention of his name. No, the weight of his words brought an entire army to their knees. Like when I realize that, it changes everything. There is power in his name. Hey, don't forget what the Bible says in Philippians chapter two, where Paul writes, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him a name that is above every other name. That at the mention of the name of Jesus, those above the earth, those on the earth, those below the earth must bow down and acknowledge his lordship. Come on, they will bow down and worship. They will bow down in gardens called Gethsemane. They will bow down in mountains of olives. They will bow down in rented Masonic buildings on the corner of 19th and Sloat. They will bow down on the national lawn in Washington, D.C. All must bow at the mention of his name. The song we've been singing for the last few weeks, these lyrics are true. 
The mountains bow before you. The demons run and flee. At the mention of your name, King of Majesty, there is no power in hell, nor any who can stand before the power and the presence of the great I am. Come on. They must bow down at his name. Sickness must bow. Lack must bow. Depression must bow. Anxiety must bow. Whatever situation you face must bow at the power of his name. Even the demons in hell have to bow before the name of Jesus. And if we can celebrate that and acknowledge it here a couple thousand years later, it should be assumed that the guys who were present in the garden for this moment would do the same. That if anyone would acknowledge the power of the name of Jesus, it would be the guys who just witnessed a whole army fall to their faces as he says, I am. But apparently not. Apparently not because one guy, Peter, the loudmouth, act-before-you-think guy, the disciple whom I resonate with the most on most days. <laughs> Instead of acknowledging what just took place, what does he do? The scripture says he takes out one of these. A sword. Now, before we beat up on Peter for just a moment, let's give the guy a little bit of credit, all right? The other gospel writers tell us that all the disciples bounce when the soldiers show up. But Peter stuck around, all right? So this guy is holding up his sword, like, come at me, with a thousand soldiers right there in the garden. Like, come on, I'm, I'm Samson with the jawbone of a donkey. Let's go. Like, he's ready to fight. So shout out to Peter and all the gumption that he had to try to protect Jesus in the garden. But also, it's a bit comical, isn't it? Like, think about that scenario for a second. Jesus has just proven with two words he can bring every single one of these guys to his knees, or to their knees. And then Peter goes, don't worry, Jesus, I got you. <laughs> like, come on, man. He pulls out a sword to start fighting when Jesus has already proven he has power over the guys that are trying to arrest him. And, and so as Peter pulls out this sword, Jesus looks at him and he says, hey, hey, put your sword away, bro. Come on. Here's your ear back, homie. Yeah. He says, don't you know if I wanted to, I could ask for thousands of angels to come to my aid right now. The hosts of heaven would come and they would rescue me from this situation. But if they did, what the scriptures have written about me will never be fulfilled. So I appreciate your zeal, son, but stop trying to do the Savior's job with a sword. Man, I wonder if some of us don't need that advice today. Stop trying to do the Savior's job with a sword. Because as I read this story, as much as I'd love to criticize Peter, I can't help but see myself a little bit. I can't help but see a guy who's witnessed the power of God only after to try to take things into his own hands and fix the situation himself. Maybe you see yourself in there as well. Where instead of trusting in the power of Jesus' name, I start swinging my own sword, trying to fight my own battles. The Bible says in Mark chapter 16 that it is the name of Jesus which brings healing to our physical bodies. So when I begin to think that I haven't prayed enough or I don't have enough faith and that's why that person isn't healed yet or that's why it was delayed for my daughter's healing, then I'm just swinging a sword. 
Acts 4.12 says that there is no other name under heaven whereby men are saved but the name of Jesus. It is his name alone and his sacrifice alone that saves you. Not your merit, not your good works, not anything you bring to the table. But when I start trying to clean myself up and make myself presentable to Jesus, and I start thinking that I gotta do better and try harder before he can accept me, I'm just swinging a sword. Bible says that the Lord is your provider. That he's the one who gave you the ability to earn income, to make wealth. I know you thought you went to that college that your mommy and daddy paid for you to go to and you got that education and you tried hard and that's how you got that job. But you know that your brain, your acumen, your ability is all a gift from God. He gave you that ability to make wealth. That's all on him, not you. Don't clap yet. Because when you start operating with pride, like I earned this. That pastor up there telling me to give 10% of my money to God. I'm the one who worked. Jesus didn't work. I need this money. I'm not going to have enough. Live generously. I earned this. I'm a self-made. Just, just swinging. When you want retaliation, retribution, instead of trusting in God's judgment. When you want to condemn other people instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to convict them. We're just out there fighting while Jesus is shaking his head. How about this? And this probably doesn't affect you. This is more of a me thing, but this is therapy. So <laughs> Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. So when I begin to think that it's our worship or our preaching or our culture or our Instagram posting, or anything else that is building and growing this beautiful community other than the name of Jesus, then I'm just out there swinging a sword while Jesus is shaking his head saying, son, this is all because of me. It has nothing to do with you. Do not get it twisted, people. There is only one name that sits above every other name. He saves, he heals, he delivers. He's the one who breaks addiction. He's the one who restores families. He's the one who brings joy. If you're sick, speak Jesus. If you're in need, speak Jesus. Let it not be just a song on a screen, but may it be the declaration of a community of believers. I will speak the name of Jesus because it's that name that causes demons to bow down. It's that name that causes cancers to bow down. It is that name that restores above all other names. Stop swinging a sword because there's power in the name of Jesus. I'm gonna start preaching with a sword in my hand more often. That's awesome. I feel powerful up here. Start walking around my house with a sword in my hand. <laughs> What'd you say? <laughs> All right, that's not it. There's a second thing that I think we see displayed in this text as well. And I want you to tune your hearts into this because I really believe this last thought is perhaps what some of you need to hear today. It's what Jesus brought you into the room to receive today. In addition to this garden scenario being a display of his power, this is also a display of his sacrifice. His sacrifice. I want you to imagine something for a moment. Imagine you are one of the soldiers in this spira that came to arrest Jesus on this night. You saw the posting at the precinct. You're like, oh, this is an easy job. Clock in for a couple of hours, a thousand to one odds. I can earn a few bucks. I'm gonna go with the guys tonight. So you log in and 
You head over to the garden, got your sword in hand, you and your entourage. As you walk up to the garden, you see Jesus standing there with 11 scared disciples. He looks back at you and he says, who, who are you here for? He said, Jesus of Nazareth. He looks back at you and he says, I am. And as soon as he says those words, you're on the ground. You're like, what the heck just happened? Is Benny Hinn over here somewhere? Like, what? <laughs> you look around and all of the other soldiers faces to the dirt. And suddenly you have a revelation. There's no way this guy is coming with us tonight unless he surrenders. His, his power is far greater than we anticipated. Our army is not big enough for this dude. He just brought all of us to our faces with a word. Now, the only way he's leaving here tonight is if he willingly surrenders himself. If he willingly sacrifices himself to us. Exactly. That is what this whole garden scenario is about. Jesus is not simply just trying to flex here like, yo, look at my power. That's not what he's doing. You know why Jesus brought a thousand men to their faces? To prove that this was not him being overpowered. This was not him being outnumbered or outgunned. He, he, he was not strong-armed into being arrested or taken to the cross. No, he brought everybody to their faces to prove, I could get out of this if I wanted to, but I'm choosing of my own volition as an act of my will to hand myself over to the authorities. I know what comes next. I know that I'm going to lose my life. I'm going to be brutally beaten. I asked the Father just a few moments ago to take this cup of suffering from me. But it's not my will. It's his will that needs to be done. So I've proven to you that I can take you out, but I'm handing myself over to you willingly. Guys, this is a big deal. This, this is Jesus proving that he could have done whatever he wanted to do in this moment, but he chose to lay his life down. In fact, he told us a few chapters earlier that is exactly what he was going to do. Look at what it says in John chapter 10. These are the words of Jesus. Ben, you guys come because I'm close to running out of time. It says, the father loves me because I sacrificed my life so I may take it back again. No one, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. I'm willingly giving myself up. Now, now that may not seem incredibly significant to some in the room. You're like, Tim, you're really excited about this. I don't understand why. Whether he was willing or unwilling, he still died for my sins. But, but let me explain to you why this act is the most significant act in the entirety of Jesus's ministry. According to Jesus, it is this moment, his willing sacrifice, that ultimately displays his great love for you. This is all a display of his love. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he willingly gave his life. John 15, what greater love is there than this? But that a man would lay his life down for his friend. 
And I call you my friends. Romans chapter five, verse six. When we were utterly helpless, Christ died for us. Now, most would not be willing to give their life for a good person, although some might be willing to give their life if someone was exceptionally good. But God showed his great love for us and that Christ died while we were still sinners. When you wanted nothing to do with Jesus, he wanted everything to do with you. He wanted everything to do with you, so he willingly laid his life down. Not because he was overpowered, but because he was willing to sacrifice himself for you. And don't be fooled. You were there in the garden in this moment. I know you weren't there physically, but you were there on his heart. He looked forward to seeing your face and said, do you see what I'm doing for you? Do you recognize the cost I'm willing to endure for you? If I wanted to, I could ask thousands of angels to come to my aid right now. I could be rescued from this situation in a moment, but if I did, I would not have you. And so I will gladly lay my life down so that you can be set free. If not for this moment, all of the words of God about his love for you would be nothing but hollow, empty platitudes with no proof. But this moment, it proves once and for all that he loves you. And so, although it's cliche and it's been said so many times that it's lost its potency, I pray these words land on good soil in your ears and in your heart today. Hear this, Jesus loves you. How much? John 18 much. Enough to willingly hand himself over. And as the guards came to take him away, he made a statement not to them, but for the hearing of his disciples and for the hearing of every single one of us today. Hear these words and let them sink deep into your heart. John 18, 8. I told you that I am, Jesus said. And since I am the one you want, let them go. I am them. You are them. We are all them. He's not just speaking about 11 guys in a garden. He's talking about you. I know they deserve to die. I know their sin has been piled up miles beyond what they can contain. But here, take me instead so that they can go free. That is the invitation of this statement. Are you willing to receive the freedom that Jesus has already paid the price for? The worst way to respond to this would be to say, I'm gonna continue to swing this sword and fight my way through, no. Surrender the Savior in the garden to the power of his name and receive the freedom that he's already made available to you. Amen? Come on, let's, let's pray. You can bow your heads and call, call across this room. I'm gonna pray for two groups of people. First, I want to pray for those of us who are trying to fight our battles on our own instead of trusting in the name of Jesus. And if that's a season you're in right now, especially if you're one of those that's just trying to fight for your own righteousness, I got I to gotta try harder, I got to do better, then maybe Jesus will love me. Maybe then he'll, he'll accept me. Just receive this today. Father, we, we surrender to your name. We thank you for the cup that you took in your hand that we'll remember this next Friday, on Good Friday, 
where you said a new covenant was being established in your blood that was not based on our own merit or our own performance, but it was based on your perfect sacrifice. God, help us to stop trying to take matters into our own hands and keep swinging swords to try to fight our own battles. Help us to simply surrender to the power of your name. For every sickness in the room, we speak Jesus. For every area of brokenness in the room, we speak Jesus. For every lack, we speak Jesus. Your name is power. So we surrender to the power of that name today. And lastly, maybe you're here this morning and you say, Tim, I, I'm one of those who finds themselves at a distance from God. Maybe you've been running for a long time, but here you are in church this morning. I met a guy at the first service who had been running for over a decade. The Holy Spirit drew him to the house this morning and he made a decision to follow Jesus after running from God for 10 years. Maybe that's your story, maybe it's not. Maybe you've just been away from God for a few weeks. Maybe you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. Whatever your story is, I believe that he brought you here today to simply speak those words over you. I love you, I love you, I love you. And the best way to respond to that love is to say, Jesus, I saw that you gave your life for me, so I'm giving my life to you in return. And if that's a decision you need to make this morning, decision to follow him with your whole life. I want to pray a simple prayer of commitment with you before you leave this place. Pastor Matt counted to three last week. That's old school. I don't do that. I'm just going to go straight for the throat on this one. All right. But if that's you and you need to give your life to Christ this morning, I want to pray with you, but I want to know who I'm praying with first. Would you quickly right now, just slip up your hand and say, Tim, that's me. I need to give, give my life to Christ today. Yeah, I got you right over here, bro. Yeah, right there in the back. Awesome. Right over here. Yeah, got you. Cool. Right on. Hallelujah. All right, with all of these making a decision today, we're gonna pray as a family so they don't feel alone. So everyone repeat after me, say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. I choose to follow you. Help me to be your disciple. Forgive me of my sin. And may I walk in your ways from this day forward until I see you in heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on, church. Celebrate with those making that decision today. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.